Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody and welcome along to another long one here on the Radio Show Limited Network of Channels and our guest today is a driver who literally grew up in motor racing. We're going to find out whether being part of a motor racing dynasty was a help or a hindrance and whether he was almost expected to go into the family business. Our long one today is with Christian Fittipaldi. Christian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Let's start at the beginning then. What was it like growing up in a Fittipaldi household, a a name that was synonymous with motor racing? Uh, Were you aware of that, even from a a young age? Well, you pretty much said it all. Uh, Like, yes, it was a help in in, uh, some cases. I think that uh, my name opened a lot of doors for me. There's no doubt about it. And and, uh, I'm never going to say that that is not true but on the other hand um, there was always a lot of pressure and always a lot of people uh, expected um, a lot from me so um, uh, what I felt the most I think when I was a kid was when I won the race yeah congrats it was normal he pretty much has to win the race and uh, when I finished a good second or a good third I hadn't finished in a good position I had lost the race um, that definitely um, I felt a lot but to be honest it was still in the early ages of my racing career I, I don't know if I uh, felt that so much after um, I moved on to like Formula 3000 Formula 1 uh, then obviously it's it's a huge filter out there and uh, people understand the business and uh, they know pretty much that it's tough and you have to be associated with the right people at the right time and still have a little bit of luck <laughs> oh yes oh yes what's your earliest memory of motor racing i mean let, let's not put to as we said not putting too much of a finer point on it you know the fittipaldi name was was known around the world the, was there any chance that you were going to do anything other than following your your dad and your uncle's footsteps I mean you know did you want to be a doctor or a dentist or a fireman or, or something else and, and even if you had to would, would that have been acceptable well at, at one point my parents gave me a tennis racket and uh, they they really put I don't know if pressure is the right word but um, they really pushed me a little bit to to go and, and, and try and uh, succeed in a as 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 tennis has a profession and i did that pretty early uh to be honest i never ever had my dad pressuring me to drive a go-kart but on the other hand i always had support from him if i were to do it um but never he pointed his finger and said, ah, you need to drive the go-kart. You need to do the same thing I did and your uncle and whatever. So that 
he never did and I never felt any pressure from him but on the other hand he always gave me support which uh, that definitely made my life a lot easier. So those early memories of motorsport were they of you competing or were they of your dad and your uncle competing did you start ridiculously early in a go-kart as some of the kids do nowadays? Well I, I started when I was a uh, nine I think uh, no 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 I, yeah eight nine and then I started racing seriously when I was 11 in go-karts um, early memories yes obviously I remember the first day I ever drove a go-kart but um, it goes back to my dad and my uncle I remember going to a bunch of Formula One races and and trying to push the car and trying to play with the Formula One car in those days it wasn't as uh, open quotes, scientific, uh, close quotes, as, as it is today. Please don't touch the car. Don't no. do this. Don't even look at the car because if you look at the car too much, you're probably going to destroy it. So I was a kid. And as any other kid, I just wanted to play. And uh, like uh, the Formula One pits for me was, was my playground. And, and I hopped in the car, got out of the car. I tried to mess around with 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 wrenches and and i tried pushing the car and messed around with uh, the mechanics so that was pretty much what i did when i was being brought up but um i i re-emphasize what i said before like I, by no means uh i was forced by my dad to do uh what i have done my whole life when then you weren't in a go-kart when you weren't racing a kart, when you weren't living that, in some ways, outrageous life, chasing the Formula One circus, as you were talking about that, what were you doing? Were you you were you had a tennis racket? Were you playing soccer? Were you how were you at school? Well, tennis racket, but that didn't succeed for long. Um, I, I pretty much uh, got to the conclusion that a steering wheel was a lot nicer than a tennis racket. Um, apart from that, honestly, I was a kid like any other. Like I had an absolutely normal life. I went to school. Uh, I, I played with my buddies at school, uh, chased them, got chased, uh, got hurt, uh, hurt other kids. <laughs> so it, it was... It was absolutely a normal life. Rode bikes when I was a kid, BMXs, a lot of those. So I realistically, I think I started feeling a change a lot more when I was finishing high school, mm. that all my buddies were going to college and were going to move to other countries to study. And, and then everyone looked at me and asked, okay, so what are you going to do? I said, oh, I'm going to go to England. I, I'm, I'm going to see if I can succeed in Formula 3. So th that Just was, like that? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I, I didn't know what to say. Like, uh, I'm going to see if I can succeed uh, as, a, as a professional race car driver. And, and while the other kids went to, to college, uh, I went to, I went to, to England to, to try new adventures in, in a race car. So how old were you at this point, Christian? Um... When I went to England, I was end of 18, 18, turning 19. Yeah. 
Yes, because I, I had done a Formula Ford season in Brazil, then my f first Formula 3 season was in Brazil, and then my first Formula 3 uh, season in Europe was, was in England when I was 19. So there you are, a 19-year-old from Brazil. You're in England, uh, different culture. Was it a culture shock to you, or had you seen enough with what your dad and your uncle had done to be able to assimilate? Could you concentrate on the, the driving rather than trying to get your head around moving to a new country? Yeah, the, you, you, you pretty much positioned it in a, in a, in a very intelligent way. Yes, th there was a different culture, but I think that uh, the fact that I was brought up in, in this worldwide culture, because when I was 40 days old, my mom was taking me to England because of the Formula One team in those days. And then I stayed there for a couple of years. And then uh, my dad moved back to Brazil. Emerson continued in England. And then I, I, I spent a stint of my life down in Brazil. But still having said that, traveled back and forth to Europe. My, my, my mother comes from a Swiss family. So we, we, we had some relatives that, that lived in Switzerland. So every now and then we would visit them. So I guess that the fact that I was always moving around uh, helped me a lot. When I went to England, yes, it was a cultural shock because I was there like day in, day out, every single day. And on your own? But it wasn't that much of a shock. And, yeah. you know, on my own, no, because my dad was afraid of sending me on my own. <laughs> and he sent me his, his folks to, to stay with me like uh, the first year. So my grandfather and my, my grandmother... They stayed with me in England. I guess he was afraid that I was going to party too much and, and I was going to come back like really late every day. And, <laughs> and, and, and he wanted things to be a little bit more under control. Formula 3 in the UK at that time was where everybody had to go. If you were an up-and-coming single-seater driver, you had to have British Formula 3 on your CV. And that was, that was very competitive back in those days. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, that was very competitive. I did uh, one season of that, and actually it was my first season of racing anywhere in the world apart from uh, Brazil. So um, I finished, I, I, I won a race, I, I had, I think, four or five podiums, and, and I, no, four, po I don't remember, I think four podiums, and I finished fourth in the championship. Yeah, it was... Uh, in your first year, I mean, that's, it was yeah. often thought of as a two or a three-year project in those days. No, it was, it was a good solid year. Was it the best year of the face of the planet? Did I set the world on fire? No, by no means. But, but it wasn't bad at all, especially because a, a, a lot of the drivers were recurring drivers from the previous season. So they definitely had a little bit of a head start on me, but I'm, I'm not making up excuses. It, it was a, a, an average strong year I, I had, I think. Um, then, to be honest with you, what uh, really called my attention was um, 3000 when I went to 3000 which was the, the 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 entry door to Formula One I I managed to win the championship on on my my first season and and that put me in a in a hard situation because I was almost obligated to make the move yes. e even if I wasn't ready like because if I stayed another season I had everything to lose and nothing to gain and and pretty much when you win over there what are you going to do like it's it's like in those days it was like formula ford formula three formula 
uh, for example, uh, Ford 3000. Uh, 3, and all of them were stepping stones to get to Formula One. Yes. So it wasn't that I was going to make a career out of Formula 3000 that I was going to run for four or five years. So I pretty much had to go. You, you ran with Pacific that yes. year. Yeah. Um, and the, the roster of drivers in International 3000 that year was extraordinary. The names that were in there that you were racing uh, with um, who all went on to have fantastic careers. You, you mentioned the ladder system. It was, it was far more clearly defined in those days, particularly, as I say, with British F3. And then, but International 3000 was where all of the young hopefuls came together. What do you remember of that year, and what do you remember of, of some of your competition and, so, and some of the drivers you raced against? Well, uh, definitely my, my toughest competition there that year was um, Zanardi. Uh, Naspetti also had a strong run, but uh, he sort of towards the end of the championship, where I think with three races, maybe two races towards the end, he started fading away a little bit. And then uh, Zanardi and I, we went down to the wire. There was some differences in, in who was running a Reynard, who was running a Lola. Mm. Some guys got stuck with a Lola. Uh, in the beginning of the year and then uh, obviously they they couldn't put all their talent in 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 practice but still having said that uh, Damon Hill was was running over there and 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 he swapped and he was no doubt a very competitive uh, fierce driver like on the track but even when he 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 swapped chassis Zanardi and I were, were, were still winning the races but so having said that like i i definitely think that uh like uh alessandro was 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 for me was definitely like the guy to beat that season although there were a lot of strong names doing uh 3000 that year that ended up in formula one either the next season or or two or three seasons later um alex was was to me the guy to beat Go and, go and look, dear listener, at the names that were in there, people like Frenson, right the way through. McNish, I think, was was in that year as well. Go and have a look at the, the names that Christian beat that year in his first year in Formula 3000. So you were learning a new car, you were learning new tracks, you won the championship. As you said at that point, what do you do? You can only move forward, I suppose. And, and do you think it might have been better? In hindsight, now if you'd maybe finished second or third in the championship and done done one more year, well, in hindsight, in hindsight, I guess the world would have been different. <laughs> uh, it's obviously a lot easier said than done. And uh, if we can look back, there isn't one single person out there that maybe would have wouldn't have changed something in their lives no matter which career you chose to pursue, either if you work in a bank, if you're a doctor, if you're a race car driver or a soccer player. If you go back to the beginning of your career or to the early stages of your career and you get asked this question, everyone is going to say the same thing. Yes, I, I had a strong career. I had this, I had that. But if I had the chance to do it all over again, I probably 
would have done this a little bit different. That's part of uh, living and learning. And um, Carl Haas always, my, my after many years, ended up being my boss for, for six or seven years. Yeah, seven years, I think. And, and every time I, I walked in the motorhome, he looked at me and he says, my son, I would love to have your body with my experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, so, we get that. <laughs> so having said that, yeah, maybe I would have done some things different. Um, and looking in hindsight, I've, I think maybe I would have risked to, to stay another year in 3,000 because what? What happens? Different times then, we should yes, say. Exactly. People, people think now about what happens with yeah. drivers coming up through... GP2, GP3 into GP2. It was different times in those days. There were people going in and out of Formula 1, teams going in and out of Formula 1 far more often than they do nowadays. And so the opportunity to move up straight away was more likely in those days than it would be now. Now you have to wait for something to happen. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, you pretty much said it all. It's uh, like it, now it's easy for us to analyze because we're going back, uh, whatever, 20, 30, 30 years. And, and, and yeah, I don't even remember. <laughs> but we're going back 20, uh, 30 years. But with, with the knowledge that we have nowadays and, and with everything that's happening uh, nowadays. But I think that maybe something that lacked for me in the beginning was uh, especially I was maybe a little bit too shy and timid and, and, and maybe being thrown in together with the big guns and, and like the lions and at such a, a, a small age and, mm. or, or little age in those days was completely different from from what it is nowadays because yeah. nowadays you get prepared a lot more when you're when you're a kid and I drove a Formula One car for the first time I was still 20 years old that was that was like pretty damn young like in those days and 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 then like the Prosts and Ayrtons and, and Burgers would would go by me uh, I would look at them and say wow like I would almost melt, like just just looking at them. And at the end of the day, yeah, huge respect for all of them and and uh, admiration. There's no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings, oh, and right. and we all have our problems. And when we hop in a race car, like either it's gonna understeer or it's gonna oversteer. <laughs> There's no magic to it. But I can say all of that nowadays, knowing what I know. Yes. So if I could go back, maybe if I had a little bit more self-esteem or, or if, if, if I had more belief in myself and, and like try to get to the conclusion that the problems I'm having in my car, Ayrton's having in his, Prost is having in his. Maybe they're driving faster cars than mine at the time, but that's like that's another problem like and and I, I i sort of like thought that only i had all the bad stuff or mm. or the bad car and and their cars were perfect and this and that and and i think if i could go back like you need to do the best job of what you have at the time and that's it 
period. And this is what you have. You need to make make a best use of it instead of waiting for the opportunity. Maybe the opportunity is never going to show up. Yes. And if I had approached it maybe in a different way, uh, things could have changed. I'll come back to that because I think you've made a very interesting point there, an interesting distinction between what I've seen with motor racing in, in Europe and on the world stage and what I see with how people look at things here in the States and how they judge talent and ability here. And I think you've made an interesting an interesting point there, Christian. We're with Christian Fittipaldi. It's uh, one of our long one specials. Let me take you back then. Let's not talk about hindsight. What do you remember? What did? What can you remember as the 20-year-old Christian Fittipaldi? You've won International 3000 and you're going to Formula One. You've got to think at that point, hey, hey, that's it. My career, I'm made. <laughs> Huge smile on the face of Christian Fittipaldi here, by the way. Well... In a way, yes, because I was a kid. I didn't know any better. Um, just turning 21 years old, I had won uh, the championship from the series that basically put me into Formula One. So what else did I need? Uh, I, I thought that everything was going to be pretty smooth and and nothing was exactly as, as what I was expected. It was, it was pretty tough. Competition was, was very fierce. And I think how did that Formula yeah. One drive come about then? How did you get into Formula One and how did you end up where you ended up? Well, there weren't a lot of options because there were some guys that were still had two or three years left in their contracts. So there wasn't a lot of openings. And one of the openings were was, uh, for example, Minardi. Um, we were talking in those days to Minardi um Leighton House which was March mm-hmm. uh, talking to Jordan and I remember can't remember why we made up the decision of going to, with Minardi which had had a, a strong season considering what they were like they they had finished two times fourth mm-hmm. in those days you would only score points up to 6 Correct. And there were like 30 cars to start the race, not 20, of which only 26 qualified. So it was a different world. And and finishing two times fourth that year, that was pretty strong for, for an entry-level team. So that's how we, we ended up going over there. And um, I remember we, we had sort of challenges from the get-go. It, it got smoother throughout the season until I had my accident in France. But, but the, the beginning, it was hard because I, didn't, I physically didn't fit in the car. And we had to cut holes inside the monocoque and, and we had to do magic to make me fit properly in the car. Those days, like the cars were really, really small. And then I remember the uh, designer, which was uh, Aldo, uh, coming up to me and said, which eventually worked, ended up at, at Ferrari, and then from Ferrari went up to went to um, Mercedes. And Aldo would look at me and say, "How are you feeling?" And I was completely cramped in the car, like, and I so you were getting beaten up in the car. Basically, yeah. everything was aching, <laughs> pretty much, and. My gut, like I wanted to tell him when he asked me, so how are you feeling in the car? Do you have enough room? 
I, I wanted to look at him and say, I'm feeling like shit. Like, there, there's no way I, I can drive the car. Like, my, my shoulders are tucked in and everything. But the desire to be in Formula One and, and the drive and the motivation, and I had prepped pretty much up to that point my whole life to make the jump into Formula One, that when he asked me that question, I said, no, no, everything is fine. Everything is fine. And, and really, in, realistically speaking, there weren't a lot of things that were fine, but that's what I had. And I had to make the best with what I had. And I didn't know if I was going to get another opportunity with another team, another shot. So that was it. I, I had two options. Either I cried and I walked away or I sat in the car and try to do the best job as possible. Did you ask advice from your dad or your uncle at that point, or did you feel you were trying to do this on your own terms? Oh, yeah, no, no, especially my dad. Like, I was always talking to him. I'm always was, was spending the majority, was spending full time over here uh, with, uh, like, IndyCar program. And he was... In those days, he was he was still running with Penske, or he was 92, 91, 92. I think he was on his second year of contract with uh, Penske. So he was like full blown having his his career over here. So we we didn't get to talk a lot, but with with my dad all the time, and and yeah, I, I spoke to him about that. And then he looked at me, I looked at him, and he said, "What do you want to do? Like it, it's either we do this or we go back home and and do something else." So I really didn't have an option. And and uh, I, as I mentioned before, like I I just try to try to do the, the best job I, I could with, with uh, what I had. You mentioned the accident in France. Had you had a big accident before in your career? No. Well, I had some offs here or there, but uh, nothing as big. I had never had a, a broken bone before, and, and I broke my, my C3 and I cracked my, my C4. I got out of the car, started moving my neck. I said, ah, no problem. Next practice, I'll be in the car. <laughs> then suddenly I sat down and, and the other cars were going by me and I couldn't notice the difference between the cars. Like uh, a Ferrari would go by, a McLaren, uh, a, for example, Dallara would, 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 would go by or uh, another Minardi. And, and I, I couldn't notice, I couldn't tell which car it is. I knew a car was going by and I was seeing a, a mix of cars and stars and I said mm, I think there's something wrong here so <laughs> you think <laughs> yeah so then they they took me to to the medical center and then they x-rayed me and immediately when they x-rayed me they already put a neck brace and, and they said you're you're going straight to hospital we're gonna do some more x-rays on you and from there they put me in a helicopter and then I went to Nevers I think to 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 do some more x-rays there and and from there I we we actually returned home like uh we had in those days i was living in switzerland so we drove to Maikur, and then when i left the hospital we went back to the track packed uh threw all the stuff in the car and, and my dad drove us back to to um to uh, switzerland so was that in some ways was that your first big setback and, and how did you deal with that and and how did that affect you going forward, particularly with 
the problems that you'd had anyway with the car, as you said earlier, in this, and, and being comfortable in the car early in the season. How did you how did you accept that setback? Did you accept it, and, and how could you use that to move on? It was a setback, but at that time I, I didn't know it was a setback because I said, ah, I'm going to get better. I'm going to fix myself in four or five weeks. I'm going to be back in the car, and everything's going to be magic again. That's what I was believing. That's what you believe when you're that age, isn't it, Christian? But then when I hopped in the car, all of that happened. Okay, I got better. I was ready to go again. When I hopped in the car, I noticed that that was a big set setback because I had been out of the car for about six, seven weeks. I had come from an accident. Like, I wasn't so comfortable coming back in the car again, although I thought I was going to be. And I went to, to Belgium and... I didn't, I didn't qualify. I didn't make the race. Mind you, it rained on the second day. We could have improved the car. I, I could have been in the race. And then right after that, we went to Monza. And Monza, for, for the team, for obvious reasons, was a real important race. And I was out of the show again. Um, and I remember on Sunday morning, uh, Giancarlo talking to me. And I had a contract for next year. And he said, unfortunately... We won't be able to re-up your contract because like, I, I, I can't be out of the race for two races in a row when the other car is qualifying in the midfield. Yeah. Uh, and I said, okay. And okay, what was I going to say? Like, at least he honored my contract until the end of the year. And he said, you still have three more races to, to try and revert the situation. But right now, the way it is, you're, you're pretty much out of it said okay so then I went to Portugal and I think I just made it in the field I qualified last or second to last and I, I don't know what happened what it was if I needed to run a race distance or what it was I ran the whole race and then at the end of the race it was like as if magic like had had suddenly set on me and and I was a lot more comfortable it all made sense again it all made sense and then we we tested Tuesday and Wednesday right after the race there and and I had a very very strong test and then I went to Japan and in Japan I not, not only qualified I think P11 or, or P12 but I, I managed to score my first points which Minardi hadn't scored any points at all that season and those points gave Minardi a couple of millions also mm-hmm. Um, and and I finished right behind uh, Alessi's Ferrari. Like uh, he finished fifth in the race, and I and I finished sixth. Uh, probably if if I was ahead of him, I probably would have pulled away from him. But uh, had a strong race, and and he finished fifth, and I and I and I finished sixth. Did you enjoy your time in Formula One? I saw real pain on your face there when you were talking about not qualifying and those those races straight back after your accident when you when you look back on your formula one career i, I realize at the time you have different emotions but when you finally decided to to walk away could you say you'd enjoyed it i enjoyed some parts of it because there were opportunities that were given that there was no other series in the world that I would have experienced what I experienced in Formula One, especially technologically speaking. But uh, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of, um, how can I put this in words? A lot of stabbing from the back. Yeah. 
there was a lot of um, lies and and there was a lot of trying to protect your job and not being a normal human being and and in those days I still thought that that was a little bit on the normal side when you were driving a race car at that level but then when I came to Indy I noticed it was completely different not that they didn't have this over here of course they did have it also over here but there's no doubt in my mind that on this side of the pond it was a lot more human and and, and you could you could act like yourself and and you could try and just sit in the car and do what you're supposed to do and and that's it sometimes you have good days sometimes you have bad days but the biggest problem i think formula one has is that they don't they take your good days for granted you're supposed to do that because you're being paid for that and i'm, I'm giving you the chance that other millions of kids would have loved to be here and when you have your bad days they just don't accept it they don't accept that we are human beings and everyone wakes up uh, someday that he's not having such a good day as, as what he had previously now having said that maybe not having a great day means instead of winning a race you're going to finish second but man finishing second is still a damn good result it's not that you're going to run dead last or something like that so that i i, I think is is the biggest i don't know if fault is the right word or, or or the biggest thing that really calls my attention about how formal one sees sees their their drivers that was the downside that you saw what was your best times what was your best single time that you remember in formula one and then we'll we'll, we'll come back over the the pond and start talking about the different philosophy that you've mentioned a couple of times now uh, with the american style of racing what was your best time in formula one only one word three times monaco 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 like really? I, I i had never been to monaco my dad always did very well there actually in 73 he was going to finish second uh, or no third and him and emil were going to finish on the podium and he ran out of fuel on 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 the last lap and i don't know why i, I always did i think well in street courses and and my dad taught me a lot um I, my first experience in monaco 33 cars pre-qualifying then qualifying i qualified 17th had a strong race finished eighth my second 17th 18th my, my second um year in monaco i qualified 17th again passed three cars in the race going into the lowest hairpin alio herbert and um, Barrichello uh, under braking and finished a strong fifth. We were in the points. That was a great result for us. And the third year, I qualified sixth there and was running second. Have like dicing it out with uh, Brundo and um, we had a, a gearbox sensor failure go bad. Probably a, a piece that doesn't even cost a dollar. And um, I got stuck in, in second or third gear. And, and that was uh, the end of my story over there. I definitely would have finished on, on the podium. And, and just an example like that, maybe that would have changed my whole career in Formula One. Yeah. But um, ifs, ifs, I imagine a, a lot of other drivers have exactly the same stories. I, 
I don't know about the other drivers. I'm just telling what happened to myself. But then you asked me the question, memories, definitely great memories were Monaco, Monaco, and Monaco. And, um, and another great memory I had in a different way was, was uh, Suzuka when I scored my, my first point because I always got a lot of, um, a lot of uh, fans that cared for me uh, in Japan. Uh, and, and I always liked going to Japan a lot and, and being able to score my first Formula One point over there was, was really important for me. You mentioned a couple of times the, the, the difference in attitude, in philosophy almost, between racing here in the States and racing in Europe. And, and, and what I have noticed in the 20 years or so that I've been across here is that even right at the very top, people that you've mentioned like Karl Haas, like Roger Penske, all of the big teams, they're far more prepared to take into account a guy who is getting a decent result out of bad machinery than just the guys at the front. It always seems to me in Europe, if you're not at the front, if you're not with the best teams, if you're not winning week after week after week and being expected to do that because you're with the best teams and because you're with the best machinery, then it's very easy to overlook those guys who are running maybe 6th or 7th. But maybe they've only got a car that's good enough for 11th or 12th and they're driving it to 6th or 7th because they're driving the wheels off it. I see that taken much more into consideration here than I do in Europe. Is, is that the thing that you found over here as well, that people prepared to look at you as an individual and see what you were capable, were, were capable of regardless of the machinery that you were having to rely on? I think it's different approaches. Uh, when I arrived over here, I was expecting, um, in some points, even easier and then when I hopped in the Indy car the first time and I went to do my first race, I said, wow, this is pretty competitive over here. Like these like cowboys over here, they're, they're, they're serious about their game. Like, had you been told, you know, had it been almost drummed into you from being in the Formula 1, oh, it's going to be a step back. It's a step backwards going to that race. I don't think I was looking at it as a step back, but I was looking at it, at it about of being something different mm. but at a lower level than what formula one was and i'm gonna be honest maybe on a road course and a street course maybe it was a little bit but i found the ovals to be a lot harder than what i expected not really to go fast but to learn the art of racing on an oval it's two complete different things like it's one thing when you're comfortable in the car because pretty much the car does its job uh when you're running by yourself but running in the pack and running in the race it's 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 a complete different ball game than than running by yourself and and that was was pretty challenging i would say and 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 it took me a, a a couple of years for me to get to to like the level i wanted to be on an oval to feel comfortable oh. do you ever feel comfortable on an oval doing 200 miles an hour with people inches away from you you feel comfortable until um when when like the shit hits the fan and, and then you don't feel comfortable anymore 
because you know you're gonna have a big one and you know it's probably gonna hurt the chances of you getting hurt are a lot lot higher than on a street course or a road course so yeah you feel comfortable but then in those days you're like in your mid-20s you don't have a family you think you're invincible you are a kid you if you get hurt you shrug it off and and you you're gonna be okay like in a couple of days or weeks so that changes your whole approach your whole perspective to everything and and um i think that that dictated also a lot of decisions i took after i i left indy cars because i had opportunities to go back to indy cars mm. and and because of what i learned when i was in my mid-20s it, it dictated my my decisions after I left IndyCars. Ah, should I do it? Should I not do it? And 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 just go from there. You work with some good people in IndyCar. You mentioned Carl Haas. Um, the competitive nature of IndyCar, and and you, you brought that up there. Those were the days where you know there was quite a lot of drivers getting good results. Um, it wasn't a given that it was always going to be the same people. Oh yeah, uh, IndyCar was one of those things that you could have had a bad qualifying and start P twentieth, and realistically win the race the next day. Uh, that that wouldn't happen in, in Formula One, yeah. not even close to that. Um, but I was lucky enough. Uh, first year I was associated with uh, Walker Racing, and Derek Walker, coincidentally or not, had be, had worked with my dad back in Brabham's. He was one of his mechanics. Um, so Derek taught me uh, a lot about IndyCar. Uh, Robbie Gordon was was um, my teammate, and like I, I gave him a, a run for his money in 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 the road courses and street courses because that's where my all my experience came from. Um, but then on the other hand, I I have to admit that uh, there's no doubt he like because he had a lot more years here and and he was a lot stronger than I was in, on the ovals and and I I learned from him. Um, but then immediately the next year, uh, I went to to uh, Newman Haas and, and and maybe Robbie taught me too much because I ended up. Uh, finishing second in Indy on 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 my first attempt, but but yeah, yeah. yeah. But then I had the, the opportunity to go to Newman Haas, and, and uh, that was definitely like a game changer because it was a top-notch team, a top-notch people, and then uh, like uh, it, it was one of the runs of my life. Like it, it was, it was almost a utopia over there. And um, coincidentally, I even went to to visit Bernie, uh, uh, his wife, uh, Carl's wife. Uh, this year back in in april for easter and uh i passed by her house and uh she, i was very happy to see her she was very happy to see me and and we just kept chatting along with some fond memories that we had for seven years that we spent together so it, it was definitely an awesome stint and and I not only have a lot of pictures at home, but uh, more important than the pictures and trophies is what I carry in my mind, and, and those I'm going to cherish forever. 
You'd been at the very pinnacle of our sport in Formula One. You talk about Monaco being one of your favourite places. That's a, an event as well as a race. Can anything ever prepare a racing driver for going to Indianapolis? No. Indy is a one of a kind. And I, I didn't realise what Indy was. And in a way that helped me because I, I approached Indianapolis as any other race. Like I shrugged my shoulder and said, okay, we did Phoenix a couple of weeks ago. Then we went to Long Beach. Now we go to Indy. And then when you go through that tunnel the first time, you start understanding that it's not that and the energy and, and all the... Even when it's empty. Even when it's empty yes. and all the other guys talking and then... The whole process is so like draining and long. You're there in those days. We were there for almost a whole month, like practicing, and it all boiled down. Like everything you learned, everything you you did correct, and all your mistakes. Like the the, the whole thing boiled down to a three-hour race. So you, you had to learn with your mistakes and use everything you did correctly and, and put all of that in practice and, and try to nail it in, in uh, three hours. So it was it was interesting. And the only time that it really sunk, like I'm an indie, was realistically speaking when I was on the grid and I looked around and I said, wow, this is like looking at 300,000 people, <laughs> 250,000, whatever, pretty much confined in it in a relatively small space like that was that was a lot of people and and i remember starting the race like the first couple of laps because you're you're used to running that place with no one on the grandstands or very little people and then the first couple of laps the colors changed so much because like the, the crowd was so intense it was so big that instead of seeing the grandstands in gray you would see them full of colors and i thought that the track had shrunk a little bit and and in actual fact it hadn't so it takes a like you don't have any warm-up in the morning yeah. come race day so it takes about three or four laps for you to get going and then you you calm down like your heart rate goes down and everything and then you, you get into a rhythm and then you just pretty much go from there what was your best moment? I asked you about your best moment in Formula One. I should ask you what was your best moment in IndyCar. Coming second at Indy at your, your first go, rookie of the year, that's that's a pretty big thing. You you won races in IndyCar. What would you, you put right up there? I think, uh, no doubt, coming second in my first attempt at uh, the Indy 500 was, was big. First win in Elkhart Lake was one of those perfect days. Like uh, Kmart boss was there, Texaco boss was there. Carl was... Um, the promoter of the race, uh, Newman Haas Racing, was just down the street. Um, it was a beautiful day. Uh, everyone that worked at Newman Haas had brought their their families over. So, uh, like, w we finished one and two. So we it, it couldn't have been better. That that, that was a an awesome day for me. But another memory I have was uh, was. In 98 in Surfer's Paradise, I, I finished uh, third in that race, and and I got beat by Dario and, and Alex, and, and they were on uh, on Bridgestones or Firestones, which were the same, but in, in those days, and I was on Goodyear's, and I managed, like, I ran that race, a qualifying lap, every single lap that I was out there, and, and I don't know why, I always keep 
like remembering myself about that race that was one of my best races ever i took another, another straight course another street course i touched the wall two times didn't break the car and uh i finished a, a strong third and like this next good year runner was like 30 or 40 seconds behind me like he, he i was pretty much on on a class of my own still i didn't win the race i finished third but i i think that one of that was one of the best races of my life so that's getting more out of what you had which is what we were talking about earlier on you're listening to christian fedipaldi with us on a a long one um never enough time to talk to people uh, like christian who have general genuine passion about what they've done and have entertained us royally down through the years so thank you for that um this stock car racing in brazil you did a, a year of of nascar but we're here at weathertech raceway laguna seca um endurance racing actually you'd, you'd done a, you'd sort of done a bit of endurance racing and, and that was interspersed with various at various times you went to le mans uh another another big event um and how does that how does Le Mans stack up against Monaco and, and Indianapolis? Well, it's especially as a kid, I, I think I watched uh twenty four hours uh of Le Mans probably eight hundred and ninety two million times and, and uh The movie, yeah. The movie. <laughs> so when I did my first lap in Le Mans, I had goosebumps because I said, Wow, it's exactly the same as the movie. I'm I'm I'm, I'm almost in my uh, in the movie myself. Well, you drive out the pits, and the first yeah. thing you see is the Dunlop Bridge. Exactly. Is there any more iconic view at a racetrack? No, it was it was unbelievable what I was what I was seeing, and I was very happy, honored, and, and thankful to to be there. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't have the result that we wanted, but I I enjoyed every lap that I did in that place. Like from the first lap I got in the car until when I took the checker. Like it was it, it, it was awesome. It was it was great, and and definitely Le Mans is a great race. But there are other great races also in the world. Like Le Mans is not the only one. Correct. Absolutely, and and one of those is another twenty-four hour race where you've had great success, which is here at the Rolex at, at Daytona. Very different circuit, very different uh, qualities required from both the cars and and the drivers. And of course, latterly, we've been enjoying your driving in uh, what is currently the IMSA series, although you were in the Grand Am series as well. Where, where does the Rolex twenty-four rate? For Christian Fittipaldi, ah, it it's ranked pretty much up there. Especially, uh, I, I would say the the latter years, like completely different to when I won it the first time in mm-hmm. two thousand and four. Like it, it was more really there in those days. It was more of an endurance race and making sure that you got to the end. Right now, the 24 is a big sprint race. Uh, th- there is absolutely n- r- zero restrictions. Like what, what, what they, what the engineers tell me before, sorry, before the start of the race is make sure you don't hit any other car. That's it. Like we, we don't have any any restriction whatsoever that we have to shift earlier or we have to do this or that. So that has changed the game radically. And and that has raised the bar of the race like way up there, uh, completely different to to what it used to be. So, 
nowadays it's it's ranked as to me one of the one of the hardest races out there the track i have to admit is not the most challenging track but it in actual fact is it's relatively on the easy side but uh daytona is daytona and it has a, a huge energy it's it's the same energy as when you go you get to indianapolis you're going through the tunnel you're going through the the little tunnel like in daytona you're already i'm i'm i love that race i'm already getting goosebumps and and the same thing when you're going in the track and in le mans like the, those these big races like they they to me they they stack the same and and all of them have its own characteristics then you have maybe a little bit more challenges in one than the other but all of them to me are, are pretty much stacked like uh, the same and your last professional international motor race will be at daytona was that deliberate you chose that well when i when i made the decision it was I don't know why I I qualified the car in Mossport. I got out of the car and and I said I'm I'm going to stop. I said I said to myself I'm I'm going to stop racing. Like I'm, uh, I don't I'm not going to do this anymore. And and still having said that, I still see myself doing a another long distance race in in any other kind of car. I don't see me doing it in a prototype, but I see me doing it. A GT car, like it's not that I'm never gonna hop in a car again. I'm I'm definitely not thinking about it right now. But uh, when I made the decision, which was exactly after qualifying in Mossport, uh, do you remember what it was that was there? Just something clicked in your mind. Yeah. Was the or was the one thing that you said, Ah, that's it. I'm done with this. I think something clicked at that point i don't know what it was exactly it just clicked that i'm out of here okay. uh I, i but i have to admit that i was slowly thinking about it for the last year year and a half because it's not that i'm a kid anymore like i've, I've been doing this for 38 years i'm i'm gonna turn 48 and And it was just a, a big snowball just that got bigger, bigger, and bigger and compounded itself. And, and then when I got the, the message from upstairs and, and I got the click and I, I think I, I all, I've always respected what my heart told me. And, and I just followed what my heart told me. That was it. But I, I at the same time, I can separate very much my professional life to my feelings and then when I went up to to Gary and Bob to to tell them about my decision they looked at me and they said but you have a race tomorrow I said no no no, no. it's not about tomorrow I, I know I have my commitments with you guys and and this is what I what I wanted to do like I'm, I'm gonna obviously fulfill my commitments until the end of the year and uh I would love to be able, if you guys were willing to give me another shot at Daytona, to to finish my racing career um, at Daytona. I I love the place, and um, I owe a lot to to Action Express. I I owe a lot to Jim, so uh, JC and and all of the guys at Daytona. So to me, there couldn't be. Uh, a more of a perfect ending uh being able to to race in daytona and and having said that like 
probably you're going to ask me this question or a lot of people are going to be thinking, ah, now the perfect ending is if you have a great result in Daytona. Yes, I would love to have a great result in Daytona, but the perfect ending is to be able to drive in Daytona for the last time. If if I have a a perfect result, that's going to be the little cherry on top of the cake. But I'm not starting the race. Uh, I am expecting to win, but I'm not expecting the great result because it's my last race. My, my motivation is to win. There's no doubt about it. And I think the team's motivation and the team's motto, which is expect to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting the race like that, but I'm not expecting to have a great result to end my career and say, oh, this was awesome because of the great result and this and that. It's going to be awesome because my last laps were in Daytona, period. Although you can never have too many lovely Rolex watches, in, in fairness. <laughs> finish off with this because I've taken enough of your time already been great thank you a race that you've not done that you'd like to do uh, an, an Nürburgring Nordschleifer a Bathurst 12 hours talking about GT races there Spa 24 some, something like that or something off the wall and do a, a Baja race or a Dakar something off road I don't know what you tell me um, I think uh uh, still the stuff that I can realistically do and I can realistically I think that I uh, be competitive um, Dakar would be something that would interest me being able to be associated with the right people and if if they could give me the opportunity and, and time for me to learn uh, I don't want to be thrown as a cold turkey in the car and, hey, go and do Dakar because I know I'm never going to succeed. Even having said that, with the learning curve and all that, it's still unbelievably hard for you to succeed because you're going against the gods that have been doing that, that stuff for, for their whole lives. But you hold a much better chance of doing well because okay i have never driven a rally car before but i have a lot of racing experience that maybe i can tie into uh, trying to solve some rally problems over here bass herf would be um i think the the easier one for me because i have never done that and i, I definitely would be looking forward to do it uh in a GT car, I think it, w- it would be uh, like the perfect number for me. So never say never to that race. And, and maybe it's something that I should definitely look into it. The 24 at Nürburgring, I don't know why. I, I have very little desire uh, for various different reasons, although I respect everyone that does it. But uh, I, I don't know if I really want to do it and as far as spa is concerned like uh i won spa in in 93 i done it in 94 91 i won in 93 yes i, I could go back there uh, also like in a gt car so touring car racing in, in yeah. those days wasn't it yeah it was it was a touring car race in, in those days and and at least on 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 the flip side of, of, of my endurance career I, I've, I think I managed to win a lot of stuff out there so like uh, Spa, Sebring uh, and Daytona like in Daytona having done that for, for three times like that was uh, I think pretty good and, and um, I'm happy with all I did and uh, 
more than happy, I just have to be very, very thankful to all these people that have given me great opportunities. Christian Fittibaldi, a life lived in motorsport, a life lived well. Thank you very much indeed for your time with us here today. Thank you guys, and uh, I'll definitely still be around. I won't be inside a car, but you'll, you'll be seeing a lot of me in the paddock area and probably when, when the races are going on and when the practices and qualifying are going on in the middle of the track. I still love watching the cars go around circles uh, and I still think it makes sense to go around circles. <laughs> I'm not one of those guys, oh no, those guys are crazy and this and that. I still love the sport and uh, more than anything, I, I have to be thankful to the sport that has given me a lot of opportunities not only as a professional uh, on, 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 the, on the racing side of things and, and being able to have the great results that I had, but also financially uh, that is, is, has definitely helped me a lot throughout my whole life. Um, and I think as, as a person, as, 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 as just living it, and I think it has taught me a lot of things, and, and I'm only uh, like thankful, thankful, and thankful for racing in general. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.